finally to off himself. There was no problem in the circles where he hung out and putting an end to yourself. He just bought into a large quantity of reds and took them with some cheap wine late at night with the phone off books so that no one could interrupt you. The planning part had to do with the artifacts you wanted found on you by later archaeologists. He spent several days deciding on the artifacts, much longer than he spent deciding to kill himself and approximately the same time required to get that many reds. He would be found lying on his back on his bed with a copy of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead and an unfinished layered Exxon protesting the cancellation of his gas credit card. That way, he could indict the system and achieve something by his death over and above what the death itself achieved. At the last moment, as end time closed in on him, he changed his mind on a decisive issue and decided to drink the reds down with a connoisseur wine instead of Ripple or Thunderbird. So he set out on one last drive over to Trader Joe's, which specialized in fine wines, and bought a bottle of 1971 Mondavi Cabernet Sauvignon, which set him back almost $30, all he had. Back home again, he uncorked the wine, let it breathe, drank a few glasses of it, tried to think of something meaningful but could not, and then with a glass of the Cabernet Sauvignon, dumped down all the reds at once. After that, the deed being done, he lay back the unran book and letter on his chest and waited. However, he had been burned. Instead of quietly suffocating, Charles Breck began to hallucinate. Next thing he knew, a creature from between dimensions was standing beside his bed, looking down at him disapprovingly. The creature had many eyes all over it, ultra-modern expensive-looking clothing, and rose of eight feet high. Also, it carried an enormous scroll. You're going to read me my sins, Charles Freck said. The creature nodded and unsealed the scroll. Freck said it's going to take a hundred thousand hours. Fixing its many compound eyes on him, the creature from between dimensions said, We are no longer in the mundane universe. Your sins will be read to you ceaselessly and shift throughout eternity. The list will never end. Know your dealer, Charles Freck thought and wished he could take back the last half hour of his life. A thousand years later, he was still lying there on his bed with the Iron Rand book and Laird Exxon on his chest, listening to them read his sins to it. They had gotten up to the first grade when he was six years old. Ten thousand years later, they had reached the sixth grade, the year he had discovered masturbation. He shut his eyes, but he could still see the multi-eyed, eight-foot-high being with his endless scroll reading on and on. And next, it was saying, Charles Freck thought, at least I got a good wine. <laughs> Hey, 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 dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from futuristic 1994 to your brain hole. I am your co-host, David Agronoff. Uh, author of Goddamn Killing Machines from Clash Books and Punk Rock Ghost Story from Eraserhead Press, many others. I am joined by two of our regular dickheads. No guests today. Um, Anthony, tell the folks who you are if they're new to our podcast. I am Anthony Trevino, writer, film critic, and uh, yeah, I guess podcaster, huh? Because I'm here yeah. every episode, except for that one time we did Paycheck, and I was not here. <laughs> and we almost did this episode without someone today, because he was super late. And that is our own Langhorn J. Tweed. Langhorn. Uh, I'm, I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. Yeah, and that's all you're going to get from him. But, you know, we try every time to, to get a little bit more out of him. That's all, all right. you need to know. <laughs> All right, so uh, we are here to talk about uh, A Scanner Darkly, the movie 
the motion picture. If you want strict coverage of the book, you need to go back in there the yeah. into the last episode or last ish round there. Uh, we covered Scanner Darkly with special guest John Shirley, cyberpunk legend, and a really uh, good man, episode too. Yeah, the man who put a guitar in Eric Draven's hands in the crow. Um, so uh, yeah, go back and listen to that one. That's a really good episode. So all I'm going to say about the novel is that it was published in 1977. Dick wrote it originally in 1971. He had a bunch of horrible shit going on in his life. We'll talk about it, I'm sure, in the throughout this episode. So um, the first thing that we're going to talk about is the production and pre-production. Is there anything you guys want to say just off the bat, like first thoughts? Anthony. Whoa, Anthony, you're see-through. Hold on. Were you trying to to rotoscope yourself? Yeah, I was trying to find a cool image. Well, that's going to be annoying to... uh... (laughs) What was the question? (laughs) Do you have any initial thoughts? Well, how about this? When did you first see the movie Scanner Darkly, and what's your history with Scanner Darkly? Let's start there for each other. Uh, I'd always heard about Scanner Darkly, the novel, and then when I heard Linkletter was going to adapt it, I had gotten in my head that I was going to read the book before I saw the movie, and then uh, true to young Anthony form, uh, that didn't happen. So I just went and saw the movie. I thought it was absolutely incredible. Uh, I saw it in theaters, though, when it came out, which was, when was that again? That 2006. Was... 2006. Yeah, so I was like three years into college at that point. Nice. Now, we were all living in San Diego at the time and didn't know each other, so I'm imagining we all saw it at the same theater. No, 2006, I was living in New York. Oh, okay. So Anthony and I probably saw it at the same theater, the Hillcrest. Yeah, right. I might, have, nope. I might have been in town to see it. I, I just can't remember where I saw it. It might have been Portland, too. I thought I saw it at a Grossmont, but I think I see every movie at Grossmont, so like. No, it was definitely playing only in the uh, the art house theaters. Was it? Then I probably saw it at Hillcrest. Yeah. Yeah, it only played at the Hillcrest uh, here, and in fact, but we were part of the initial rollout because there were two releases. They released it to the art houses first, and then tried to do a wider release, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um. And I know I, I saw it at the Hillcrest, and my my history with Scanner Darkly was that um, I did manage to read it before the movie came out. Um, and it's the same thing when Linkletter announced it, and I already was a Philip K. Dick fan to a degree. Not like I am now, but... And so it was like my fourth or fifth Philip K. Dick novel that I had read. And I read it maybe two or three months before seeing the movie. So, of course, I, I loved it and was, you know, super stoked on it. And one of my memories is I went with my friend Paul Stewart to see it at the Hillcrest, and there was a bunch of bro dogs sitting in the row in front of us. And I remember as soon as the movie was over, the one of the bro dogs turned to the other one and said, what the fuck did I just watch? I have no idea what the hell just happened. And... I thought the movie was pretty clear, but apparently Sir Bro in the row in front of me uh, was not well, prepared. You know, I'm going to say this right off the top. He has a point. <laughs> All right. Well, that was not the opinion I expected. So you you were in New York, you think, maybe? Uh, no. For some reason, I think I was in Portland. 
uh, visiting family or something like that. But, you know, I can't, honestly can't remember exactly where I was when I saw it, which is rare because I, like, I track my movements through what movies I see at the theater, so... Yeah, I have a weird OCD about remembering every theater that I saw a movie at. Yeah, it's, it's very rare that I, I don't remember, you know, the theater, time of year, all that stuff. So. Yeah, and but you think you, you're pretty sure you saw it in the theater? Oh, no, I definitely saw it in the theater. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I had been a big fan of Linkletter since, you know, even since Slacker. It was actually my mom that, that said, oh, you got to see this movie. And then Dazed and Confused was out when I was in college, and that was that was also like sort of life changing. Just seeing this old old timey world of the seventies, and I don't know all those young actors that became famous. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because he made this movie between School of Rock and Bad News Bears, which are both not very good movies. I mean, I know people like School of Rock, but you have to be into really into Jack Black to like that. Yeah. I was familiar with Linkletter because I liked the Before Sunrise. Before oh, yeah, Sunrise. that series. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, well, and also, also before, uh, before this, he had put out Waking Light, which was also a very influential film for me. Yeah. So, and mentions Philip K. Dick in the movie. Like, and, a couple um, of times, right? Yeah. So, okay, that's our history with it. So let's get into the production and pre-production and the aborted attempts uh, to make Scanner Darkly before this. Pause for plane. <laughs> like the <laughs> yeah. Starlight Bowl. Yeah, I know. Um, so so of the aborted uh, pre uh, earlier attempts, uh, Terry Gilliam uh, tried to make a version in the early 1990s. Um, and I believe, and I'm not positive of this, but it, it makes me wonder if Charlie Kaufman's script, which was written in 1997, wasn't for Terry Gilliam, or if he just did it on his own. I couldn't find anything about that. I don't know how serious Terry Gilliam was about it. Terry Gilliam also tried to make the world Jones made, if you recall. Um, and also Ubik. Uh, yes. like almost every single, uh, Dick movie that hasn't been made has had Terry Gilliam tied to it in some way or another. And uh, coincidentally with Ubik, Ubik was the one that Linkletter wanted to make first. Um, and like a lot of filmmakers have tried to crack Ubik. Um, and a lot of writers, including uh, Phil himself, which we'll be doing eventually. You guys, do you think Ubik is hard to do as a film? I, I don't think it I is. I don't think so. Yeah. I think it might be hard for audiences to take in as a film in, in certain regard, but if they can take in a scanner darkly, I don't think it, it would be that. Right. I, I mean, it's, it's not going to be but, any weirder than Memento or any of those kinds of movies. So. But my other question for you guys is, is we, we always do kind of come back to Terry Gilliam. Do you guys think Gilliam is the right director for any of Dick's work? Oh, I think it would be, I, I mean, Gilliam. Almost is, everything. Almost everything. He would do a great job. You think so? Almost all of the Dick I don't know about that. I don't know if I agree with that. Well, that's, I think that I think Terry Gilliam think in, his, in his prime could have done it, the movie that I'm thinking of that makes me think he might have done a good Scanner Darkly is um, is actually The Fisher King, which is one of the you know less audacious 
yeah. you know, wacky. But it's also one of his highest praised movies. I would have, I would like a Gilliam. I would like Gilliam to do one of the earlier Dick books, like the World Jones made, or uh, even even the Cosmic Puppets would probably be pretty decent if Gilliam would were the one doing it. Yeah, Japed would have been a good one for him, which I think is my... The man who Japed? Yeah, the first oh, time okay. I, I picked him as director. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see uh, man who Japed, but... Um, and but not I... I'm the guy. <laughs> right, yeah, that's... Yeah, you're right. You're right, Anthony. And when it comes to those, like, weirder, deeper thematics, that's not really his bag. His bag is weird mm. and entertaining. And and, and and garish and grandiose and, and very yeah. fantastical. But not necessarily narratively deep. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I just I just was I just kind of thought it was kind of interesting. I'm not the biggest Gilliam fan. So, but oddly enough, I think my favorite Gilliam movie was probably aside from Brazil, The Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, because I really love the concept of that movie. Right. I thought I loved that movie. It's yeah. also bittersweet too, but you know. Yeah, I actually I love Fisher King, and um, I do. It, Fisher King is one of the movies that I absolutely know for a fact that it made me cry in the in the theater. Like um, I do think that if you think of the guy who made Time Bandits and Twelve Monkeys, like there's yeah, I just I just watched uh, Time Bandits like two weeks ago. Okay, how did it hold up? I'm very. I mean, it's amazing. It's still yeah. amazing. Yeah, like yeah. The, the special I, I, effects aren't that. The thing about Gilliam is he's so cheap because he has to be that it's hard to age his stuff. Mm-hmm. You look at it and you're just like, oh, that's cheap. You're not like, oh, that was the '70s or that was the '80s or whatever. And Time Bandits is like that. You're like, oh, this is done cheaply. <laughs> I remember the we all, we all say they, if they don't have cell phones, it's old time. So. Well, Time Bandits, I saw in the theater when it came out, and I remember the Minotaur scared the crap out of me. Yeah, yeah, me too. A little kid. I yeah. saw it at the drive-in. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so it's interesting. I would kind of like to have seen what Terry Gilliam had done back in his heyday with, with PKD, and it's, it's too bad we didn't get it because I think – you know, of all those old early ones, I think we could have gotten something really good. And and uh, but yeah, so Linkletter wanted to do Ubik, and um, he he actually worked on a screenplay and worked on obtaining the rights, and he said that he couldn't quite crack it. He was um, that he just didn't um, feel he could get it. And then he was talking to his producing partner Tommy Palata. Um, during when they were making Waking Life, and uh, Palata um, suggested Scanner Darkly, and it was one that they had both been a fan of. And really, it also uh, says that Wiley Wiggins had a, a big part in, at least in in the uh, you know in the IMDb interesting facts or whatever it is, it says yeah. that Wiley Wiggins actually suggested a Scanner Darkly initially to Linklater. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the interesting things that I found in my research was that Palauta um, wrote a, a letter to um, Russ Galen, who uh, uh, 
nerds of our show uh, will remember that I um, emailed Russ Galen, one-time literary agent, to Philip K. Dick and invited him to the show, and he said, and all he responded was, "I no longer talk about Philip K. Dick," <laughs> which is a, kind of a funny thing. But anyways, it was a letter to him that was delivered to the family um, from Linkletter, basically saying that um, you know they had this plan for this rotoscoped version and that they wanted it to be faithful. Um, and uh, I think the family was hesitant at first, the idea of what they considered a cartoon version. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not sure if they screened Waking Life for them or if they just saw Waking Life on their own, but they came around to the idea. And I do know that at some point, Linkletter uh, checked out um, Kaufman's 97 script, which we should probably talk about now. So right. somewhere somewhere in there, 1997, uh, Charlie Kaufman wrote um, a script based on a scanner darkly. And, you know, it's interesting because when I was reading it, that if you hadn't read the novel, but you just read that screenplay after having seen the movie, you would think, man, that guy should sue the WGA and get you know, writing credit. Yeah, right. <laughs> because some of the scenes are almost exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, the opening scene is almost exactly the same. Yeah, and then... Um, but the one thing that was int- interesting in the script, the scramble suit scene with the the, the Lions Club... But that's thing. all straight out of the book. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I was saying is he wouldn't be able to sue Linkletter to get writing credit because it's literally just... They both translated the book like word for word. And it's yeah, interesting that two, you know, pretty established names in Hollywood adapted this book the same way by being so faithful to it. I love that you're calling these guys established names in Hollywood. Like, well, well they are anti- anti-Hollywood people. Like, well, true. Linkletter stays in 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 Austin, That's and, and true. Kaufman hates Hollywood with a passion. So. Right, right. But they're they're both like award nominated. They're, they're very they're very good filmmakers. That's they're sure. very good filmmakers, and they both made the same choice to to. Now, I did see an interview with Kaufman where he used this experience of Scanner Darkly as an example of why he doesn't do faithful adaptations anymore. Because he said he his main motivation in working on Skinner Darkly was that, quote, I had never seen Philip K. Dick done faithfully, and I wanted to see that, right? And so, like, that was one of his motivations in writing it. But then he said, after that experience, he never wanted to do faithful adaptations again. And, of course, he eventually got the job to do The Orchid Thief and did that crazy movie adaptation. Right which was as much of a departure from the source material as you could get. Yeah. And, can you explain why he doesn't want to do a faithful adaptation like that again? Is it because it's basically copying what's already been done and it doesn't leave as much room for, like, creative interpretation? Well, the, the, it's funny. The, the YouTube video that I found it on was just like, Charlie Kaufman explains why writing movies sucks. Um, <laughs> And he was basically saying, like... He's right. He was talking about how no one's willing to take risks or take chances. And Mm. 
Um, but what's funny is, is if you think about it, like one of the reasons why people hadn't done a faithful adaptation of Philip K. Dick is because they weren't willing to take the chance to do a literal translation. Whereas, yeah. like they like, you know, it's much yeah. easier to focus on the action elements and yeah, add guns. Or to put a yeah, you, you put a bunch of submachine guns into the villain's hands, and then you know, all, or occasionally all that. you just put hats on them. Magic hats and Magic why would hats. you bring that back up? I don't know why we were going back to that movie. Uh, uh, right, and that movie had not happened yet at this point. That so. movie didn't even have the fucking balls to have a talking dog in it. <laughs> um, but anywho, um, so the Kaufman version. One of the things that I really appreciated about it was that it took place in futuristic. 1994 um and and it also i you know i have it in my notes here um it uses terms uh fuzzmobile bread foxy um he really does use the language of that time i mean it's really yeah one thing in there is that he he really uses that language well yeah, and I, that was one thing. That was the thing I most appreciated about the Kaufman script was was the language was great. That was really great, and then that was one of the most fun things. Um, there's a lot more dialogue in the Kaufman script. There's more explaining done, which you know it's a first draft, so you'd expect that. And one thing that the Kaufman script is much more focused on Feck and and not Barris. There's not as much time with Barris. Um, right. No, Freck. Freck, uh, yeah. But that's, the, it, that's the, like, the main difference, right? Because in Linkletter's uh, script, he got rid of the, the Freck character and sort of made his stuff, split Freck's stuff between uh, Woody Harrelson's character and, uh, and Wiley, or what's, what's his face's character. So there's Wait, one what? less. They didn't get rid of him because he has the whole suicide scene, and and. But that's has... not Freck. That is Freck. That I mean, is I'm, Freck. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm talking about. Uh, 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 Luckman. And Fabin. Woody Harrelson's character. Luckman and Fabin. Yeah, and Fabin, Fabin is 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 yeah. kind of yeah. not so in the Fabin, which which, uh, uh, Kaufman has in there. Kaufman still has Fabian in it, and Linkletter does not. Yeah, and and then and Freck, um, Freck takes over a lot of uh, Fabian's parts, and and so does Luckman. Yeah, yeah, and in the Kaufman version, there's there's two key differences. Um, the suicide scene is much more conventional in the Kaufman version. It doesn't have like the narration uh, straight out of the novel, which is one of my favorite things in the movie. So, um, right. I didn't have that. And then, um, uh, the scramble suit Hank is not Donna in the Kaufman script. Uh, Donna is just a federal agent, like more close like in the book. the book. Yeah. And I think that was a key change that link letter made. Which, that was... I mean, that's the best change he made. Yeah. Yes. Cause that made the, made the, the movie make sense. Which is what I said when we were doing the goddamn book, is that it comes out of left field that she's some like agent, and we have this whole second storyline. 
but he tied it to the main story, which helped. Yeah, we'll get more. Yeah, into it's that a pretty easy sense. change too. Like it, it, it's totally seamless as a change. I bought it. I actually last night when I was when I got because I watched it in two parts because I fell asleep last night. When I got to that part, I was like, oh, I don't think it's ever directly addressed in the book, but. I was that if she was or wasn't Hank, but making her Hank is actually pretty smart. Yeah, I and, I, and I remember I started to mention <laughs> that in our book episode, and Larry correctly was like, ah, "Don't don't go there." Yep. Um, and uh, so I and I didn't, but um, <laughs> there's some uh, some cool facts about the the filming. Um, they the cast assembled for two weeks of rehearsals. The film was only filmed in twenty three wow. days, so they they almost rehearsed more than they than they filmed. Wow, which, which is interesting. Um, and it was filmed obviously in Austin, Texas, where Linkletter works. Um, although some exteriors were filmed in Orange County, uh, i.e. the freeway. It, it, so he did a real like rehearsal. Uh, sessions with these people. You did real rehearsal sessions. Yeah, it wasn't and, just before uh, every every uh, scene they rehearsed. It was no. They spent. They went in a room and, and read the script and did all that. Stuff. Yeah, and Basically from what I, from what I can tell, it seems like they had the book with them and they were oh you know spending a lot of time with the book. Um, Rory Cochran, who played Freck, was the you know, basically said that he didn't think about it before he got there. Whereas Keanu Reeves and Robert Downey Jr. spent a lot of time working with the book. Winona Ryder talked about spending a lot of time reading the book and getting into right. the book. Uh, Winona Ryder, uh, coincidentally, <laughs> uh, apparently grew up in Pentaluma. Um, Petaluma. Petaluma, in the same uh, area. And her godfather was Timothy Leary, apparently. Wow. Yeah, so Winona Ryder and Phil Just know this, know this, people. Anyone who's famous in Hollywood, they have somebody in their family that's also famous. <laughs> Generally. Bullshit that you can make it on your own is bullshit. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Welcome, Welcome to, to my TED Talk. Yes. Um, so, uh, but Winona... Writer, the, one of the bonus features, they showed her talking on set with Issa, um, Dick's daughter, and they basically were like, hey, we probably grew up in the same area and had a lot of the same friends because um, basically what she thinks is that, you know, Winona Ryder was basically so, theorizing. Is, Issa, Issa's not, she's older than us, though, right? Yeah, she's older than us. She was bored in the in the sixties. So yeah. Winona's just a one year older than me. So yeah. But what she was talking about was that she thinks that Winona Ryder was thinking that her parents probably hung around and, you know, she was kind of suggesting that maybe her parents might've like scored at, at Phil's house. And, and all that. But, <laughs> you know, I think awesome. she was, yeah, she was kind of having fun with that in some of the bonus features. One of my favorite things that the actors did um, is that Robert Downey Jr. wrote out because he had so many run-on sentences and like long things of dialogue. He wrote them on post-it notes, and he would put it on the set because Linkletter told him, "Well, it doesn't matter. You can put it right on the table because we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna animate over it." 
Yeah, it's very it's very Godfather, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and then because and it's kind of interesting that he was able to. Um, uh, That's also funny because, in a way, you could say that uh, Robert Downey Jr. is sort of the Marlon Brando of our our, our time. Like he's ultimately talented and had ultimately fucked up his life just like Brando did and then you know had a comeback and stuff like that it's, it's a very mm-hmm. similar story right well uh, we should I think what we should talk about is is first off the bat like right away this movie doesn't work without the rotoscope true or false hmm. great question um I think it would be far less engaging without the rotoscope. I think it'd be fine without it, but the rotoscope really takes you out of reality and into this world where you don't know who's watching who, what's really going on. It creates a sense of disorientation that a regular, being a regularly shot movie wouldn't have. Yeah, that's exactly what, what I thought. And if, if we didn't have the rotoscope, the only stuff that would seem blatantly weird and surreal would be the scramble suits. The aphids, too. Yeah, and the aphids. And the aliens reading the sins. But I, I it, it all really works, I think, better with the rotoscope. Oh, another I, thing. I think that, was, that was a, it was a brilliant choice. 100%. And probably why Linkletter, you know, was like, oh, we can do this. Yeah. That rotoscope. Yeah, and it makes me wonder if he was planning on doing Ubik rotoscoped or not. I don't think he was. I think that's what what tipped the balance uh, to, you know, to doing Scanner Darkly was that he was planning to do Ubik like a straight film. Did you guys see any of the footage of the actors doing the scenes without, like, the footage that they shot of them just doing it? Just doing it live? No. Yeah, what the weirdest thing is that Woody Harrelson has no wig and, and no hair. Oh, really? It's all. Yeah. <laughs> it's just he's got but short he hair. Was at, he was shaved head? Not completely, point? but very short hair when okay. he was doing it. And then, um, you know, and that was that was one of the weirdest things to me is that the hair was done in animation. Which, <laughs> um, Although I think one time he was holding a wig. So, but I know they showed him doing at least one of the bike scene parts. Maybe he was rehearsing. I don't know. But, um, so maybe he was wearing a wig during the actual filming. But, um, yeah, if you get a chance to see some of that footage, it's it's pretty interesting to see hmm. without it. Um, and, and it would be interesting to, to see, if they, you know, they didn't release a lot of scenes like unrotoscoped. As Larry walks into his rotoscope, um, well then, yeah. so do, so they, so what? How do you answer Larry's question, David? Do, does it, you know? I think you could have made the movie without a rotoscope, but I think the rotoscope definitely makes it better and makes it a more interesting and weird thing. Um, you would also have the brain separation. You would have like the testing. There's ways you could make it weird. Um, and I think that if you filmed it without animation, you would, the way I would do it, if I was going to do a straight movie and I wasn't rotoscoping it as I would have like the trip drug trip scenes be more surreal 
and have the movie get more surreal as Bob Arctor loses his mind. So that could have worked. So I'm not saying that it couldn't work without the rotoscope. Right, right. But, uh, well, it couldn't have worked with Linkletter without the rotoscope. I think Linkletter... Yeah, it would have to be a different filmmaker for it to work. Uh, yeah, I was going to point that out, too. Yeah, I think it would. if it was going to be without the rotoscope, then it would be a different filmmaker's movie. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, imagine oh, like what a, uh, what a bold choice in in two thousand in the two thousands using old timey rotoscope. Yeah. But that helped it stand out. Like even though I was I like I knew that that book existed, the fact that they did it in such a way made me more interested in seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would have seen it no matter what, but <laughs> I probably would have too because I yeah. see everything, even that new shit ass Texas Chainsaw movie. But... <laughs> um. Well, and the last thing I, I'll say... I have not seen that. <laughs> the last thing that I'll say no. about the, the preparation is that um, Keanu Reeves was the one who was most heavily invested in using the book as a resource. And um, I think from from what I gathered, it seems like he was he was marking down scenes and, and corresponding them, making sure that he, he was writing notes in the screenplay of what page certain scenes were on so he could go back and look at them before filming. Um, Winona Ryder said that it was one of the most difficult scripts and books that she had ever worked on for an adaptation. And which um, is odd because she's done she doesn't have a lot to do in in the, the movie. Yeah, that uh, that's has a what, lot to do in the same way. Now, uh, not that now when you say it. that, when you say that, Anthony, are you aware that she filmed all the Hank scenes? She did all no. the Hank scenes. Yep. Oh. She did all the Hank scenes. I, I I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. That's she that's did. actually that that does add a certain depth to it. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. She played Hank and for all the scenes and it's funny because they do show in the behind the scenes footage that she has her hair pulled back and she's like you know they had her wearing something that was like a robe that would like simulate. So how did how did the voiceover work then? Was did she do well, the Well, Keanu if you remember Keanu Reeves like they split between when he was inside the scramble suit and outside well, the I'm saying what I'm saying is did the the uh voiceover performer use her inflection and that kind of stuff or was it a separate performance altogether? That I don't know, did but she, I do know that she, she would have just been you know miming so well, she did say – I did see in the, the bonus feature she said that um, she was very conscious of what – that Hank would be trying not to move his body in certain ways to give away his identity. Right. And that yeah. – you know, so she was thinking about it pretty deeply in her performance. And look, I'm not I, – I think Winona Ryder is, is, is a fine actor and she's been very good in certain things and – Very and bad her. in others. She's been very well, but Keanu Reeves, the same could be said. So, the know. same should be said. <laughs> well, you need to just. Nope, nope, nope. I... Anthony, you're fucking wrong. I... You're wrong. Keanu Reeves, great guy, like su- stupendous guy, never has been a good actor. Uh, I know no, that is true. That is What about in Point Break? I. I'm an FBI agent. All right, you know what? Fair. <laughs> Still a great movie, though. But let's be real. Patrick Swayze is why 
we watched Point Break yeah. and Gary Busey. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, All no, right. I thought, it, I thought it was what's his face from uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. That oh. would be a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, overall, welcome back no- to mine and Larry's podcast about Point Break, <laughs> um, which I fucking love. Now, two uh, kind of secret weapons that Linkletter had to get this movie made was um, that Steven Young Soderbergh. Reed. Well, no, uh, Steven Soderbergh and George Clooney were both executive producers, and oh. that helps you get um, Keanu Reeves. Robert Downey Jr., Woody Harrelson, and Winona Ryder to sign on to your your movie now. Um, Here, here's my sec- here's my second question that I want to ask, uh, and and it's the the same as the rotoscope thing, but I I believe this movie does not work if Robert Downey Jr. is not the bad guy. I think Robert any, Downey, any other uh, actor uh, would have been terrible. You mean if RDJ wasn't playing Bears? But yeah. oh man. Like, I, I can't think of anyone that could handle that part and make it likable and unlikable and sleazy and and smart and, like, all the things he, he brought to that role. Well, I do think he's incredible in that role. I do think he, he like really... Definitely award-worthy. Like, that's... <laughs> right. He's nominated for a ton of shit. Um, he was great. However, I, I'm going to give one example... Of somebody who, if I say his name, I'm going to say his name, and then you're going to go, no. And then I'm going to give another example of a role he played in another movie. David, Guy Pierce is not the right fit for Bears. <laughs> I'm not saying Guy Pierce. I'm saying Brad Pitt. Now, now you're going to say no, but then I'm going to point to 12 Monkeys, and I'm going to say, like, I would still rather I have... I didn't Robert... even say no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no one said no. Okay, I, I'm thinking but, but about I it. But I would, I would argue that early True Romance era Brad Pitt could do it, yeah. not yeah. newer, I'm, like, not now Brad Pitt. I'm using that as an example to tell Larry that I disagree with you. That I nobody mean, he's else, doing Mr. and Mrs. Smith, at this point. So. Yeah, but hey, man, what, sometimes it's nice to get a couple hundred k just for fucking showing up and putting on a suit and throwing, getting thrown around on stunt wires. Shit, hire me for that money. I'll do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but think about him playing Eldo Rain in um, in Glorious Bastards. I think like Brad Pitt can cut it up if he wants to. No, but he's my... a, he's an amazing character actor. But my like, point they, is, they always say about Brad Pitt is he's a, a character actor caught mm-hmm. in a leading uh, in a leading man's body. Interesting. Yeah. Well, what yeah, about yeah. Viggo Mortensen? Mm, I don't see that. But well, look, Viggo Mortensen. I don't see that. I, yeah, Vigo doesn't have that range. I don't think he doesn't have that that humor. That that I know he, humor. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the. I've never that's seen the element you need. Funny. Michael Shannon. Michael. <laughs> no. No, but too imagine too intense. Too intense. But imagine yeah, Michael or, Shannon as Bob Arkin. Yeah, that works. Now that's something I could see. Yeah. Um, or you know what? It would be a weird one. He might be too over the top. If you could restrain him a little bit, like Jim Carrey, um, would be interesting. But he does. He does. Yeah, good honestly, role. I'd be down. For, I'd be down for that. Yeah. So my point is, is that as great as as Robert Downey Jr. is in this role, I well, think now that we're we going could that do way, other people. On. One more. One more. Now that we're going down this road, what if it were Adam Sandler? You say that, you say that, but did either of you see Uncut Gems? 
Yeah. I didn't say no. Amazing in that movie. Masterful. But, I love uh, you know, he's in movie. one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Punch Drunk uh, Love. Punch Drunk Love. Yeah. So, yeah, I, but Ferris wouldn't, he, I don't think he would do a good job. That, yeah. one, that one just has too many facets. To my point is, is uncut that gems. Uh, as, great, as great as Robert Downey Jr. is in this movie, and as, as much as he makes the movie great and really elevates it, I think. He's but not it's the villainy. He's not the only person. I don't know. Brad I don't I don't think Brad Pitt can play that villainy. I bet he that, could. The, the part where he's uh, where Barry's sitting there. Oh god, that's a terrible movie. <laughs> but he's good at it. I actually disagree, Larry. But but what I what I did I disagree that that's a terrible movie, but I also disagree with David only because that's a totally different villain. That yeah. Psychologically, that's a totally different villain. Robert Downey Jr. plays this smug, like conniving, backstabbing villain. They have the uh, the dialogue between uh, Arthur and Donna in the car when Arthur is explaining Barris how he just shows up and does this, and then somebody dies. It's that is the perfect explanation for that character. Yeah. But Robert Downey Jr. works that in such a way that yeah, that's believable. That is that guy. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But anyway, real quick though, because because a lot of love really gets thrown towards Woody Harrelson and Winona and Keanu and RDJ, but like honestly, Rory Cochran kills it as Charles Frank. Oh, yeah. He's fucking great. He honestly was my other favorite character aside <laughs> from Robert Downey Jr.'s Barris. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's he's great. This may just be because I'm in love with character actors. I always have been. I always will be. But those two together when they're at the diner. Any, basically any scene with them in it is incredible. So I just want to say, you know, shout out to my boy Rory Cochran. He's yeah. he's he crushes it in this movie. He said he didn't think about the character once before five minutes before the first rehearsal. He's he's incredibly talented, isn't he? Yeah. Like you compare this role to his role in Dazed and Confused, mm -hmm. you you can't even see the same person. Yeah. It's it's amazing. And then and then I just watched the. Uh, Oh man, I, I'm I'm sorry to say this, but I just watched the, uh, the Empire Records, which also has Rory Cochran in it. I mean, I I've, I've seen that movie many times. It is not so, it is so fucking bad. I haven't not seen it since the '90s, but it was so fucking bad. Liv Tyler and oh my god, but uh, Rory Cochran was still good in his in his role. All right, so. Um... Principal photography began on May 17th, 2004, and lasted six weeks. Arctur's house was located on Eric's Circle in southeast Austin, so if we have any listeners in Austin, Texas, go find it. Um, the previous tenants... I, I had a feeling this uh, was shot in Texas. I, I didn't know that, but... Yeah. Like it, well, I mean, it, like, didn't, it didn't really have that, that Southern California vibe to it. Uh, the previous tenants of the house had left a month earlier, and they left the the place as a shithole. So the production designer didn't have to do didn't have to do much to make it look like a rundown, gross ass house. <laughs> so um, they, you know, that was a real like shit pit house they were hanging out in for for weeks filming. Um, after principal photography was finished, the film was transferred. To QuickTime. <laughs> nice. Nice. 
<laughs> yeah, it was done in QuickTime, and it took 18 months uh, to do the animation process. I've heard, I've heard various reports on that, but... Right. Now, the original budget for the movie was $6.7 million, which is not a lot for a movie, uh, for a movie with big-name actors in it. Um, yeah, they, they must have to... all been working for scale. A lot of I think work. the majority of the movie uh, probably went, and rightfully so, to the animators who worked on it after the fact. Yeah. And they added $2 million to the budget um, and added and gave... Originally, the animation was not was only supposed to take a year. And they added six months and $2 million to the budget. And they had to... Um, they had to change like the work, the work ethic of, of the animators. They had to like really lean on them and create. Oh, so it was done in America. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Got it. Um, what? I've worked for four hours, man. I need like two days off. <laughs> That's how I feel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it was a limited release on July seventh, two thousand six. Um, with a wider release to more screens a month later. We need more sweatshops in this country. That's what. Oh, I, my, calm down. Put, put your MAGA hat away. <laughs> so the July 7th release what put it directly against Pixar's Cars and Par- Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Men's Chest. So they weren't going for a number one movie at the box office that week. No. Uh, and, that's that's uh, my opinion about Dead Man's Chest. Yeah, but uh, before um, I thought that theater too, as yeah, did so. I. So one of the first screening, it screened at the Seattle International Film Fest and Con Film Fest. Um, I think for some weird reason Seattle was the premiere. Um, but the if you get a chance to watch the Con uh, Film Fest press conference, it's really good. Uh, specifically because we learn we get some really direct proof, even though we already knew this about Keanu Reeves, that he is a serious dickhead. Because um, when they asked him if he used the novel, and he said, oh, "Of course," and then he said that he had a long relationship with Philip K. Dick, and that his first time reading Philip K. Dick, that he started with the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, and he mentioned how fucking weird it was. So, uh, <laughs> he basically went, he said, uh, describing it. And so obviously Keanu Reeves, um, needs to be in Anthony and I's series adaptation of three Stigmata. Well, let's just get him on the show. <laughs> I know. I would love to. I, yeah, I wonder, I'm going to think about that. I'm going to think about how we can do that. Um, call his people. Yeah, I, I yeah, I got to figure out how to get his people. But shout yeah. out to the cosmic alien. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whoever played that. Um, uh, let's, you know, let's... I I was really impressed, and this is a production thing, but the uh, the voices that they did for the uh, for the suits. Oh yeah, awesome. Those, those voices are there's something strangely pleasant about those mm-hmm. like computerized but still human voices oh, i love the suits i could watch the suit cycle for like an hour and it's really and of course wanna, that's maybe my guys mr right there maybe a little baked too and watch scramble suits 
showing a scramble suit and someone uh, doing poetry or reading a book or something in yeah, that yeah. voice, I'm good. I'm good. I have two things on the scramble suits. One, um, I, I'm assuming you guys saw Philip, Philip K. Dick's face in the very first scene of the scramble suit. Yeah. That was intentional, obviously. Um, Shocking. His face... His face um, appears several times, actually, in the or like three or four times. Oh, I was I was definitely looking for it this time. So. Yeah, and then uh, a couple a year and a half ago, um, Scramble Suit followed us on Twitter on the Dickheads, like oh, yeah? an account that's just a Scramble. It says Scramble Suit, and there's a picture of a Scramble Suit. And nice. then they followed us on Facebook. So somebody goes by Scramble Suit. That's awesome. So shout out. Shout out to Scramble Suit. Yes, shout out to Scramble Suit. <laughs> um, but uh, what did you guys think of um, overall um, how Richard Linkletter did as writer-director? Um, I think he was fantastic. I think, especially after reading the Kaufman script, he did, you know, and this time reading it, or having just read it so recently, you know, I noticed the things that he did differently. Oh. Um, and compared to the the Kaufman script, there's a lot more. He allows silence and for the audience to figure things out on their own um, a little bit more than the Kaufman script did. There's yeah. less explained. Um, I well, thought the um, the scene with the scanner office where they're all monitoring different people was really great and creepy, and that kind of was. I think that was an invention of the movie. Um, and then obviously the twist at the end with the reveal of Hank being Donna uh, was was an absolutely masterful change. It was very smart. A stroke of brilliance on that. On yeah, that. he added the bike scene back that was not in the Kaufman script. Right. Um, <laughs> and the bike scene. That I bike scene has to be there. And it's so important to Phil for what he was thinking because yeah. that was yeah. the moment that broke Phil, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, was that bike scene, and I don't know if he... Now, um, there's a, a radio interview he did in 1976, and I'm sure it's one of the ones you have saved. It is uh, It is going to be in our opening on this. So. Okay, yeah. So he... Uh, originally, Linkletter wanted to use Phil reading the scene of the suicide... He read the suicide scene during... A radio interview in 1976 before the book was 76, 77, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. The book was not out yet. And he read that suicide scene and he wanted to use that narration in the movie of Phil actually reading it, but decided the audio quality wasn't good enough. And so oh, they had. The things you can do with audio nowadays, like, it easily could have been fixed. Yeah, and the audio is not that great in that scene, so I I wish he'd kind of just done it. I wish yeah, he just, just <laughs> yeah, just use Phil there. Just went for it. And um, but uh, in that scene, the fact that he kept the suicide scene in there exactly as is, um, another stroke uh, of genius. Yeah. Um, I, mean, um, I that is the funniest part of the book, right? Is that is that like, isn't that agreed amongst most people? Is that the the bad suicide attempt with the reading of all the sins is like the funniest part of the book? Yeah, and it shows the dark humor that PKD worked with 
and uh, you know I think that 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 was I think that was really apparent in that scene and, and very good so yeah, yeah he- heck yeah I liked it um, and then I th- kind of wish that he had done more with the 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 sh- I know they they have the scene where they have the aphids in the jar and they're talking about how much money it was. Um, I kind of wish they'd had a little bit more of them, like with the shoebox trying to catch them. But <laughs> yeah, but uh, see, they they eliminated the uh, the whatever that other guy was, Fabin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's just you know it's just Frick doing his yeah. thing. Yeah, and then. You know, I th- there was a couple other things that were real obvious to me when I was watching it. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're not doing this and they're not doing that. But they're not really occurring to me right now in this moment. But, um, well, but I, I, very- I can- that's because they weren't that important. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is that if I were to put my snooty f- film guy ascot on um, and kind of look at this as an adaptation, the, the really only the, the, the complaints, complaints that I would have are very minimal and nitpicky. Like, so nitpicky really? that it's irrelevant. Like, uh, I think the if we were talking book v. film, right, Larry? Like we were talking about yeah, at the beginning. Yeah, we are. <laughs> uh, like, I, I think that what the book does better in the later, the latter half of the novel is really embracing how horrific addiction can be um, yeah. through the character's yeah. eyes. And I don't really, I didn't get that same kind of feel from the movie. Hmm. There's there's the scene where she takes Arctur to to New Path and he throws up on the floor. But all the build up to that in the book I think is better. In it it especially in the scene where they're parked on the hillside looking out at the city and the cop shows up. Yeah. Before she takes him to New Path. Um, for me, I thought that that you know that's a great moment in the book. It's not in the movie. Yeah, it, it was unnecessary in the movie because she right. already we knew who. Yeah. She yeah. It's was. It, but so that's what I mean when I say it's nitpicky. Yeah. Um, but so my thing is, is I, I actually think Dick's kind of exploration of addiction does feel more harrowing to me in more horrific. Than it does, it does, than yeah, it does, it does get somewhat lost in the movie. That's for sure. Yeah, the um, book is and, definitely more horrific with the with the with yeah, just how so, so, awful it was. Yeah. So I think I think Dick's mission statement is better accomplished in the book. But I think the movie's fantastic, and I, I don't know if that's really what Linkletter's like mission was anyway. You know, Dick already does it so well in the novel that he didn't really need to do it in the adaptation. All all the stuff is is there. Yeah, what do you think right. about his putting the epilogue that the the author's note at the end? I thought that was really cool. That yeah, it's very yeah, classic. I that was great. Yeah, yeah, and then um, and I think that that really. Now, one thing but that's I, different... Uh, I have the same problem with the book and the movie. Is that Uh-oh. the plot is very thin. Like, the, the actual story of we need to find out uh, who's making this drug is so thin in both. So, I would have liked, in the movie, to have seen him fix that that weakness. And, and he does do a couple of things that help, like Winona Ryder being an actual... Like involved in the story, uh, but that it's still very thin throughout. Like, oh, we're we're this is what we're trying. This is our end goal. We we don't see that throughout most of the movie, and it's well, the same in the book. Is that it's kind of a second 
secondary storyline that shows up at the end. I felt so, like that wasn't really addressed. Now, it's interesting in the Kaufman script, he introduces like Arctur goes to a new path facility really early on in the script. Well, he does that in the book, too. So. Oh, yeah, he does do that in the book. Yeah. I have a question for you guys. But, but in what, the book, in the film, good. No, there is one other. Th- I did remember the other thing that I thought could have been stronger in the movie, which is that when they go to San Diego in the in the movie, it's kind of random. Like they they don't do as good of a job of explaining. Like the scene is really well set up in the book. Like, hey, you need to get those guys out of there so we can put the hollow scanners in there. And it's kind of mentioned in the movie, but it's not as clear, like, why he has to get them out of the house. And yeah, that's that was, a, it's a lot more vague in, in the movie. In the movie. And and so I think that – but I think that's important because that's the beginning of him spying on himself and, like, losing do, that group of Do they even talk about it? And he's no, I don't think that they do. Does him and, uh, and whatever the, the other cop. Yeah, and Woody Harrelson says, uh, "Yeah, our, our road trip to San Diego's ruined when they get pulled up." Or- no, does, uh, but does uh, Hank and and Fred? Do Hank and Fred talk about putting the the surveillance? I, I know they talk about having the surveillance there, but they never talk about the plan to put it there. No, I don't yeah, think that they do, and that and I think that, that was that's but like one of the that's one of the few mistakes to me. Yeah, that, that's one. Like, that leads into my other question is in the book it seems more obvious that Arctur starts to realize that he's spying on himself whereas in the film I don't really feel like he realized that he was spying on himself like he questions if he is Bob Arctur or not but he doesn't really seem to even understand that yeah that part is definitely clearer in the book the split happens a lot differently in the film I think and it's much better in the book yeah, because it's so much slower. He can, you know, Dick can afford the time to just be like, oh, he slowly is separating, you know, his cop self from his criminal self. But in in the in the movie, it's like one scene. Sorry, I can't. I'm not good at snapping. But uh, one scene that, you know, where he's like, oh, I, who's this Bob Arctur guy? He's all right. And and then that's when the split happens. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So it definitely, as faithful as it is, there's still little things that I think are better in the book for sure. Well, yeah. It, definitely, it definitely could have been a better movie, and I think that's what Linklater is saying about uh, being so true to the book is that if he would have gone a little more into making a like a a noir type film out of it then it would have been made a better, more successful movie. Because he, the point is that we're trying to figure out who the villain is. You know, That's supposed to be the point of, of the whole thing. But we don't get into that storyline until the last 15 minutes of the movie. Just like we don't until the last 50 pages of the book. Mm-hmm. Now, um, well, let me think. Are there... I personally think that the book is slightly better, um, but just because I think that the slow um, realization that he's spying on himself is freaking amazing in the book, and it's kind of glossed over a little bit in the movie. I think 
They he did it almost as good not, of a job. It's not absent though. I mean, it's not that's... absent. And 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 look, this is about as good as you could possibly do adapting it. But there's just little, two little things I I would have done differently is I would have focused a little bit more on the uh, on Arctur like you know I mean it's there like the whole scene when 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 um um Woody Harrelson's character starts having starts choking and he yeah. has to watch the whole thing and that that was great that was really well done yeah that was but, amazing but I think just a that was better than the book I mean that scene yeah. Actually, seeing him watch uh, Woody Harrelson's character die, and, and Barris not doing anything was yeah awesome. But but that thin line where Arthur starts to lose who he is and who he's watching is just done so well in the book. And I don't know that you could do it better in the movie, but it, that's just one thing that, and that may just be the form of prose versus. Yeah, you know, uh, but that's what I'm saying is that if he would have. You could have easily focused more on the those plot beats than than being faithful to the book's idea of what the plot beats were. Sure. So, um, so okay, everybody. Uh, <laughs> everybody. Last thing on um, comparing the two, um, as far as to me. Those are the two major things that I kind of wish were different, but for the most part, it's so such a faithful adaptation. I mean, I think this is like Stand By Me level faithful, you know. Um, yeah. It's yeah. rare that you see a, a movie this faithful, and that's why I compare it, compare it to Stand By Me, because Stand By Me is one of the most faithful adaptations I've ever seen of anything. I, there, there, isn't there like one big difference in, in the body? Uh, I gotta. I know. Oh, the finger on the scale. That's that's what it is. The only real difference is that the uh, when he goes to get the food, uh, the in the in the book, uh, the 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 guy behind the counter tries to cheat him by putting his finger on the scale when he's buying the meat, and that doesn't happen in the in the movie. And that's always an example I use is this Stand By Me Faithful, you know, which is funny because they changed the, the name. But other than that, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but uh, Stand By Me does sound better than The Body. The Body. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a better title. But yeah, I mean, th- I mean, obviously, this is the most faithful Bill Kate Dick adaptation, including like the Electric Dreams. And uh, now I, I haven't seen a radio free album. So I yeah, I'm still holding out for a, a even more faithful adaptation. I haven't seen it either. Yeah, well, we're waiting to watch it with with reading the book. So yeah, um, yeah. I mean, as far as I yeah, as far as big big Hollywood ones, this is definitely the most faithful. And... But this is not big Hollywood. It's eight million dollars compared to it's an indie film. It's an indie film. Yeah, it's an indie film, but it has big named Hollywood actors. If it has Tony Stark in it and Neo, but he wasn't Tony Stark yet. He right? was still Robert Downey Jr. doing his come his comeback. So yeah. don't call it a comeback. Okay. So okay, the next, uh, anything else on comparison? Comparing the faithfulness. Uh, the next question is: Would 
would would uh, Phil have liked it? And I think he would have. I think he would have. I think he would. I think he would have dug that rotoscope. Yeah, I think yeah. he would have. I don't know if he ever saw. Like, I would know. It, it, I would. I would like to know if anyone out there knows if he ever saw one of Ralph Bakshi's, you know, uh, rotoscope movies. Hmm. Like heavy or, metal. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. That would that would be a good example, but. Any of those, any of those like '70s, early '80s rotoscope animated films. Yeah, I think he would have gone crazy for this one, and I think he would have been like, "This is the first time they totally got it." You know, he wouldn't have been embarrassed by it. He would have, yeah, he would have, he would have gone nuts for this one. But you know, and and the the sad thing is, is that you know. Well, I mean, he, he felt that way about the first 20 minutes of Blade Runner that he saw. Like, he's, like, you know, blown away by seeing Well, the fact that it took 25 years after his death for anyone to even come close to making anything remotely like one of his books. Well, I would say Screamers is pretty good, uh, pretty close. And I what? think Not, No, no, no. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's a good movie. I actually it's agree with David. Story. I think Screamers... I... But it's I not. It's not close. It's more faithful than Blade Runner. But that's not saying much. No, I mean, I'm just remember the whole point, point that... was that the attacks were were engineered from the moon in the story. Like it when goes it, no. Just because there's a kid that blows up doesn't mean it's a, a, a an exact replica. Good ass movie. Good ass movie though. Yeah. Um, and we kind of already answered the question. Turns out Pinocchio's not a real boy. <laughs> God, I love that movie. It's a total sci-fi channel movie, but I like yeah, it. It's, I, it's do think it I, I do think it's more faithful than Total Recall or Blade Runner, but I understand what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, we've already kind of talked about the, a few of the things we would do differently, but... But um, so, final thoughts on uh, Scanner Darkly as a movie um, overall. How are you rating it, Anthony? Um, I'm giving it five aphids out of five. I think wow. it is the best, uh, most faithful Philip K. Dick adaptation. Um, if you've listened to the show in the past, especially the movie episodes, uh, you'll you'll not be surprised by what I'm about to say, but I've been harping this point for so long since we've been doing this podcast because I feel like it's important that a lot of what you what gets called oh it's Phil Dickey it's PKD it's like it's this it's not it's just Blade Runner it's Blade Runner pastiche yeah. or or or, homage, or or like yeah homage you know it's very action based it's very you know, little man against the big government. We got a stage of revolt. There's lots of action. There's some fun tech. Blah 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 blah. That's not to say I don't love Blade Runner or Total Recall. I do, but they're not great PKD adaptations. They're fun movies, and I think that A Scanner Darkly is the best one we've gotten so far. I think it's faithful. I think it understood the subject matter better than any of the other adaptations oh, did. Definitely, definitely, and. And I think it does it in a beautifully shot way of, but with the rotoscope stuff. Like it, the art is beautiful. It's a genius idea. I love this movie. Ten out of ten. Big fan. A hundred light years of far and away from the Adjustment Bureau. 
Yeah, um, I'm going to give it five out of five jars of aphids. Um, and yeah, I agree with you on pretty much everything that you said. It's the most, it's the one that understands the subject material better than any other adaptation. Maybe with the first two episodes of Man in the High Castle and not any of the the rest. <laughs> um, um I think the first two episodes of Man in the High, maybe the first four episodes of Man in the High Castle, get it, um, and then that kind of falls apart. But there again, like I think they really fucked up making the Grasshopper Lies Heavy a, a movie. Um, but that's that's a whole other thing. Um, but yeah, I think Scanner Darkly, like Richard Linklater, got it. Uh, I wish he would make Ubik now. You know, outside of. Or filmmakers take that risk and do a more faithful adaptation. You don't need guns and robots to be PKD. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would like to see, like, that's why, you know, Del Toro, for example, I would love to see Del Toro do a PKD. Who's Del Toro? Guillermo. Del Toro. Del Toro. I, I'd, I'd rather see Benicio Del, Del Toro. Toro. <laughs> what? I'd Guillermo. rather see Benicio Del Toro do PKD <laughs> than... Guillermo. I, uh, I know that, that, uh, Guillermo is enough empty promises. Guillermo is enough of a dickhead that he knew who Bill Searle was just from the dedication of, um, maze of death. So if only Tarkovsky had done a PKD adaptation, that would have been awesome. That would have been awesome. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, uh, Larry, close us out on final thoughts. Um, I'm going to give it uh, four and a half little blue flowers. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, obviously, this movie gets the novel. Uh, but the problem is that it gets the novel. And the novel has flaws. So the, the movie takes those same flaws and and uses them. Doing it as a direct adaptation means you are carrying on the flaws of of the source material. And maybe people are happy about that, but I'm not. I I don't want I don't want a book in movie form. I want a movie. So fix fix the mistakes. And Lee Better did a good job of fixing some of the mistakes. Yeah. But he did not do a perfect job at fixing all the mistakes. So it's a it's almost perfect, but it can't be perfect unless it fixes all the mistakes. And perfect doesn't exist. So right, all right. Well, um, on that for note, the Matrix, I think. Excuse me. The original Matrix. Perfect. Pretty, Pretty close. <laughs> this yeah. and no. No, both of you shut up and get out of my office. We'll talk about this later. <laughs> Memento? Perfect. Okay, now we're almost perfect. Memento's, I think. Memento's really, really good. <laughs> uh, Alien? Alien, also. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Perfect, maybe. There, there's almost perfect out there. Aliens. You know what's almost perfect? The game. Almost you know- perfect. You know, Almost. Aliens, a couple months ago, Jeff Vandermeer went on this tirade on Facebook about how boring the first hour of Aliens is and how much, like, it sucks. 
And I, I was almost ready to pull my eyeballs out reading that. You like, jumped I, in there? I didn't. I was just like, you know what? Fuck this. Like, what an idiot. Yeah. I mean, no, that that's not a boring first hour. That That's called building tension. Yeah. Art is subjective. We can like what we like, but The Matrix being a perfect movie, you, you rewatch it. All right. So I, I, I saw it six times in the theater. Well, you, you obviously like it more than us, but um, I liked it, though. All right, so listen, um, I'm not sure what our next episode is going to be because uh, um, after after this one, I'm not sure what's up next. But um, by the time this one comes out, maybe we'll be heading it'll, towards that. Yeah, it'll probably be December by the time this one comes out. Who knows what yeah. the hell I'm doing these days. Um, <laughs> on that note, so send your emails to Larry saying you're really the Langhorn yeah. what the fuck at hotmail.com that's h-o-t-m-a-l-e dot com <laughs> alright so this may come out before Valis I'm not sure but if it doesn't um, we will we're, we're getting very close to the end here guys it's amazing right. we don't have many left so well, we are uh, nearing the end of this season at least so yeah. Uh, and we'll see folks later, so keep it paranoid. Don't be... Oh, uh, wait. Totally be paranoid. Stay Goodbye. Paranoid. Watch out for aphids. Etc.